Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be taking a look at open theism in the book of Romans. We're going to be looking again at Paul. I believe our last Paul podcast, we covered Paul throughout the book of Acts, showing that he was in fact an open theist. So when we're reading Romans, we're going to pay particular attention to a few things. Any of his descriptions of God, who God is, how God acts, how God thinks, how God makes decisions. Uh, what's the nature and character of God? We're also going to take a look to see what his idea of the future is. Is the future set? Is the future open? Is Paul a Calvinist? A lot of scholars think that Paul is, in fact, a Calvinist. They think that he grew up in this Hellenistic world and had adopted by his time Hellenistic ideas, such as predestination of all things, Calvinist predestination. But I don't think that is the case from the data that we have and how he describes the operations of the world. So we're going to watch for that. We're going to also watch for Paul's ideas about free will. What's the nature of human beings? How, how does that nature interact with the world? These are Paul's ideas. And Romans is the perfect place to go because the church at Rome was not founded by Paul. He is writing to them what looks to be a complete description of the things that he's teaching elsewhere that you're not going to find in the other books because those books were already, he had established those churches in those areas. He had ministered to them directly. Romans is an unministered people, which he's reaching out to. So we're going to start at his greeting. So he likes to start his letters with greetings. And this is a letter. And so a letter is a, a document that's addressed to a specific per people or person with a specific purpose in mind. And it's very interesting to see who's Paul's audience and what he's trying to convince them of, what he's trying to tell them, what do they already believe, and what is he trying to convince them of. A lot of times he's interacting with hostile audiences. Remember, he gets in prison because people hate him. The Jews hate him. Jewish Christians, followers of Jesus, hate Paul. And so he's preaching controversial things. So let's watch to see what he is teaching and why, in fact, uh, they hate him. <laughs> Starting at his greeting, Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be apostles, set apart for the gospel of God. Now we're reading from the ESV today. I mean, it doesn't quite matter what translation you use. It's a good idea to switch up translations once in a while. So maybe you might see new things that you hadn't seen before. ESV is fine. The difference between the ESV and the King James and the New King James is the textual documents that it's based on. The majority text is used for the King James or New King James, and critical texts are used for for all, any other version, basically. And so it's it's good. I like the New King James a lot better, but ESV is fine for our purposes here. It just pulls out different things in the text. So I like this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There's a lot of dependent clauses here. So we try to figure out who says what and when. So Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, probably modifies Paul. He's called to be apostle, probably modifies Paul. Set apart for the gospel of God, also Paul. 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I don't think he's claiming that he was promised beforehand, but this gospel. So in his mind, in Paul's mind, there is a promised gospel somewhere beforehand. And of course, God is promising things in the future. And so the, what is a promise? The promise is you're under obligation to act in some way in the future to make something happen. This is not language that that you would use of a God who controls all things in, in a system like fatalism. God makes promises. God accomplishes those promises. Concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. That's actually pretty important. So when the Bible says only begotten son of God, it most likely, most likely refers to Jesus being born of a woman. Being born of a woman. And this is very important in Christian theology. The humanity, the humanness of Jesus. And this, this Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh. And so original sin, if that concept is true, if he holds to some sort of Calvinistic idea of inherited guilt, one has to get around this descending from David, this fleshly basis that is talked about over and over again, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he's descended from David. The, those two things have to be melded. And I don't, I don't think that Paul held to Calvinistic ideas of inherited sin, that there's something inherently bad about our DNA that gets passed down from generation to generation. I don't think that he had to go through this mental logistics in order to try to try to subvert try to subvert these modern theological notions like inherited guilt and was declared to be son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our lord it looks like he's pointing to the resurrection as a power act proving Jesus is Christ's his status through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith. Now, Paul thinks that he can affect people. He can do stuff in order to bring about obedience of faith. So let's pretend this phrase was attributed to God, that God is bringing about obedience of faith. The Calvinists would rush in and they say, see, look, God metaphysically controls our inward beings. He has these little metaphysical switches that he gives us, uh, you know, this renewed sense inside and enlightens our spirit. So now we could understand and and have faith. No, but when the Bible uses these phrases, it's not metaphysics, it's practical. Paul can bring about obedience of faith. And how does he do it? Practically, by preaching. How are they going to believe unless they've heard? So when the Bible's talking these, these terms, it's a mistake to automatically assume metaphysics. When all context assumes these are practical phrases, it's not metaphysics. Paul's not causing metaphysically obedience of faith he is doing practical actions by which you could say he's the primary cause primary agent of their obedience he he ministered to them and as a result they had obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations so god is very concerned about his pr we see that throughout the old testament that god is concerned about how other people view god his name his, his how he is regarded what people think about God, and he's very careful to protect his image, which is not a thing that the Calvinist God would do. The Calvinist God doesn't care because he can't receive from outside himself. They 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 point to these ideas like self-sufficiency, that 
God cannot benefit from other beings. But in the Bible, God all the time benefits from other beings. And so much so that he cares about even how his name's associated in the minds of the pagan nations. In Exodus, in Exodus, one of the reasons, and the, the reason, if you read the later accounts of it, the reason God changes his mind about destroying Israel because he would be regarded as a death cult God. He would have brought his people in the wilderness and killed them, and everyone would look poorly on God. That's why God changes his mind in regards to destroying Israel. God cares about how people see him, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. God loves. God has emotions. God, God cares about people. He benefits from outside himself. This is part of what love is. I love my kids. They, they bring me something. They bring me joy. They bring me happiness. There's an interaction there. Love is just not this, this static thing. In Paul's eyes, God has love. Right before this, God's caring about his name. And then after this, God has wrath. God has emotions. Paul is just describing the Old Testament picture of God. So is, is Paul a newfound heathen, a newfound... Uh, Platonists bringing in Platonistic concepts, or is he reaffirming the biblical witness about the nature and character of God? He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, is he thanking God because God made their faith proclaimed in all the world, like a Calvinist deterministic uh, thing of all, all events to ever occur? I, I don't think that's what's going on there. I think he's praising God about them because of who they are, like a prayer that's actually going up to God saying, look at these people, God, aren't they great? And we, we get kind of a further idea of this in the next verse. For God is my witness. God in heaven watches the world. This is a pretty common, common idea throughout the Bible, which is not necessarily what he's referring to here. He might just be saying, God is my surety. God will make sure that I'm not telling a lie here. God will punish me if I'm wrong. Remember, when in the Bible, when we talk about false oaths, it's a swearing in God's name, and God is to act as the avenger for false promises, false swearing on God's name. And so this could be, in fact, that. Whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that, and somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He's praying to God without, without cease for them. He believes God hears prayers. God responds to prayers. And he's also praying for a changed future, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It's not like God's will is fixed and only one thing can happen in the future. Uh, my will for my kids is that they, they grow old and happy and have good jobs and, and raise good families. And there's a lot of different ways to accomplish that. They could be probably something like uh, a general contractor and work work as an electrician or something like that. Or they could be like a corporate lawyer. That wouldn't be too bad. Maybe one of these government lawyers probably put the nicks on that. You don't want to be no government lawyer or anything like that. But there's a lot of ways in my will for my kids, for my kids to succeed in my will for them. It's not just this one thing. And Paul th sees that with God, there's there's different ways to accomplish God's will. Romans 1.11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, Paul's not talking metaphysics. He's not saying he's going to 
turn some switch inside of them that will turn on a spiritual gift or not. Again, he's talking practically that in some way he can reach out to them and teach them something of practical value which they then can use. Remember, when we're reading this, if this phrase was about God, that God's imparting spiritual gifts, people would think it was like a metaphysical enlightening. But it's not about God doing it. It's about Paul doing it. So they read it like a normal person. It's a huge mistake to come across phrases that's God doing something and then take them in complete different ways than we would take it if it's a person doing that same thing. Paul can save people. Paul uses that language that uh, he can do something to save someone. Paul can save himself. He could do that. The, the, these are things you can do because we're not talking metaphysics. We're talking practicality. If I go preach to people uh, in uh, at Mardi Gras, if I come with signs, repent, I can, in fact, save some people. It's not metaphysics. And when God does it, it's not metaphysics too. There's no context supporting that interpretation. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. See, it's practical. It's practical. I could do something, you could do something, and we could both gain by the experience. Both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I may reap some harvest among you. He's giving himself the credit here. It's not like, oh, Calvinism collapses, because now God doesn't get the credit. If, if Calvinists were critiquing this, if this was, uh, let's say Leighton Flowers wrote this letter to some people he converted, they would uh, get all up in arms about the language. Oh, you're not reaping the harvest. God is reaping the harvest. And, and you're just glorifying yourself by these phrases. Paul is not a Calvinist. Paul speaks specifically and expressly in terms that Calvinists reject. They criticize and they mock. They make memes against this. Like, oh, these are these people saving themselves. This is the language used. Calvinists mock the Bible. They hate the Bible. They literally hate the Bible so much so that their memes directly criticize, not with the direct reference, directly criticize the express language used in the Bible repeatedly. Repeatedly. They're, they're so gone in their cult mentality, though, that uh, they think that somehow it doesn't matter what the Bible says. Their theology is right. And if you use any language, even language used in the Bible, you are to be criticized. You are to be condemned, even though Paul uses that language. James uses that language. The Bible uses that language because they're not Calvinists. They don't have these Calvinist values. They don't care about these Calvinist concerns. They are not Calvinists. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek. So what does Paul think? That, that the gospel saves. You preach it to people and people could decide to believe it or not. He says it's for it's the power of God for salvation. The gospel saves. And so he preaches it. He's not ashamed. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's the interesting thing what he does with this letter. It's not like a normal person letter. Uh, if, if you're writing <laughs> to a church or something, you're probably not going to start off with how he does in the next paragraph, with just this weird condemnation against ungodliness. 
he seems to be starting to put together some sort of argument, some sort of idea that they could latch onto and he could guide them through point by point, a very complicated argument that they might not agree with, but he has to start them out with the right base, a base that they're going to agree with. He writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So notice some things there. God has wrath. God has emotions. This is strong emotions. And why? Well, we don't, we don't get to the why yet, but we do see something that men suppress the truth. So how do you suppress the truth? It's not that he has this idea, this Calvinistic idea that everyone's dead and there's no coming to God. No, people actively have to suppress the truth. They hear the truth, they understand the truth, they know the truth, and then they push it down, they push it away. This is volitional, and it's very important. This is a very important point that he makes. He's not a Calvinist. This, this is a linchpin to one of his primary points, that this is volitional, this is willful. There's no excuse. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. What can be known of God is plain to them. So in a lot of ways, Calvinists deny this. They don't think that we can know anything really about God and God has to condescend in our language. No, people who reject God know God. They know what can be known about him and God has shown it to them. God has actively proselytized these people and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They are rejecting God. So in the Calvinist language, in their mindset, they always are like, oh, if, if God tried to save someone and didn't, then God's a failure. Yeah, this that's what it's describing here. God has attempted to reach these people. He showed it to them, and then they suppressed that in unrighteousness. And that's the reason, that's the reason they are blameworthy. They have no excuse. Reading on, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And this nature he's not talking about is not this weird classical simplicity. Oh, God is without change and, and, and outside of space and time. That's not stuff that's uh, invisible attributes that have been clearly seen, being taught since the creation of the world. These things are not taught. Instead, what is his divine nature? It's his power. It's his Godhead. It's the creation of the world. It's the created things. It's his historical acts. So that they are without excuse. If Calvinism was true, if they had total inability to uh, reach out to God, if they had total inability to reject or accept God's proposition of the gospel of salvation to them, they would have an excuse. But it's very important for culpability reasons, for justice reasons, that they have no excuse because God has attempted to give them everything they need to be saved, yet they rejected God. Therefore, they are to blame, not God. It's not a justice problem with God. God is doing what's just, but they are to blame. Not a Calvinistic mindset. The people who think that Paul thinks that we are all automatons and, and predestined all our little actions um, with this fatalistic, oh, God's controlling all dust motes. That's, that's explicitly, expressly against what is being described here. People are rejecting God and they reject God in mass, despite despite what God has done. He has shown them, he has clearly shown it to them, his invisible attributes. It's plain to them. They understand. They, they, can, they can process this. They're able to, but they don't. Therefore, they are blameworthy. Read this. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And so they had the ability to process. They had the ability to understand, yet they suppressed. See this, they became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. This is not a birth condition that's being described here. This is uh, people with cognitive ability suppressing things that they learn and understand. It's not this total inability from birth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Again, transformative verbs there. They were this, and they became this. In exchange to the glory of the moral God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's specifically talking about pagan idolatry here. And remember the criticisms of the pagan idols, that they have ears and do not hear, they have noses and cannot smell, they have eyes and cannot see. But God, Yahweh, can do all those things. God can hear, God can smell, and God can see. And those are attributes that Calvinists deny to God. They specifically deny the attributes specifically attributed to God within the Bible. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up. They, they, were, they were gods. God had them. Uh, God, they, they were not totally dead, totally gone. He gave them up after he saw what they became. God responded to changing circumstances. Paul is an open theist. To their dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, moral culpability. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is willful. This is volitional. This is not an inherent condition. These are life choices being described here. Why? Why does he point this out? Because they are without excuse. There is no excuse for the things that they have done. It's not, oh, I never had a choice since birth. Oh, I was eternally predestined into one thing rather than the other. That is not Paul's model of how the world works. He's not a Calvinist. For this reason, because God responds and God has reasons, God has discursive thinking. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So God saw what was going on and then responded in turn. For their women exchanged natural relations for those which are contrary to nature. Men likely gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, look, volition again. Paul believes in free will. Paul believes in people rejecting God. Paul believes that God responds to people rejecting him. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. It's not an inherent human nature characteristic. God gave them up because of who they were. God responded to people, to people's actions after watching what they do. This is not inherent human nature being described here. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Look again at that transformative verb. People can choose to do things. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Again, describing moral character of who these people are that God rejects. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but give approval to those who practice. Again, these people know the truth. They're just rejecting the truth. It's not, it's not a mental deficiency. It's not like, oh, inability. It's willful. It's volitional. It's blameworthy. 
they are culpable for their actions. Romans 2.1, and uh, this is a pretty unfortunate chapter break because look at this. Therefore, you have no excuse. Paul, in his attempt to start this letter out, he needs to point out very thoroughly that people have the ability to accept God, but do not. God has done all that God needs to do for them to accept God, but they reject God. They are culpable because they have volition. They have control of their own destiny, so to say. God wants them to act righteousness, righteously, but they reject God. And therefore, God responds. God responds to changing human circumstances. This is Paul's theology. Oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same thing. Again, more culpability. That If you are judging hypocritically, you are increasing condemnation because you should know better. The judges get the harsher punishment because culpability culpability and uh, how, how much you should know plays into how much blame you receive. The teachers have the harsher judgments. Again, this is not a Calvinistic idea. The Calvinistic idea is, oh, we're all clay. There's some sort of unwritten rule set somewhere in the ether that we violate or don't violate. Rather than as people have excuses, then they're less culpable. As they run out of excuses, they're more culpable. If I go to my kids and they're punching one another, oh, why did you punch so-and-so? Oh, he was going to punch me. Well, that's that could be a good excuse that you might be let off if that's the case. But if it's, uh, oh, he's making a funny face at me, still an excuse. You're still less culpable than if it was just malicious and, and there there's no reason you punched your brother, something like that. But excuses do matter. They matter to God. If you have reasons, God will judge you differently. And remember, uh, there's uh, back in the Old Testament, Abimelech. He had an excuse. He said, I didn't, I, you know, I was going to take this Sarah girl. Um, he said he was, she was the sister. I didn't know it was the wife. I, I did this in innocence. And God said, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not going to kill you, but uh, let her go and don't do that. When uh, Adam and Eve, they talk to God in the garden, they give excuses and the, the condemnation of death doesn't really happen. It doesn't. It, there's a lesser punishment. They're expelled from the garden for one. And so reasons and excuses do matter to God's evaluation of the matters at hand. God does care about excuses. So it's really important to, to for Paul to establish here that God's judgment of their unrighteous people, these people are without excuse. Therefore, the judgment is just. Culpability is based on capability. In Calvinism, there's no capability. No one's culpable by the biblical models because in the biblical models, your culpability is based on your capability. He writes, We know that the judgment of God falls rightly upon those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, well, you escaped God's judgment and these Jews did? They think, thought that uh, they were going to judge the Gentiles for sexual immorality, but since they are God's chosen people, they themselves would, would miss out on that blame because they had a special status. Or do you presume... On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. A lot of things to note there. Note also God's emotions. Paul is an open theist. God has kindness, forbearance. This is a time-bound thing where, where you suffer, you suffer. Forbearance. God suffers. This is a real-time thing. He has patience. It's not like God's timeless, eternal 
That's not in Paul's theological vocabulary. God has patience. God endures. God suffers. And guess what? God's purposes sometimes fail. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Did all these people repent? No. God's kindness had a purpose. And some people it worked on. Some people it didn't work on. But God does things for reasons in order to get people to act in certain ways that don't always materialize. Paul is an open theist. But because your hand and impenitent heart, guess what? People have volition. They are rejecting God. They're rejecting God's kindness. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is going to punish them in wrath with, with emotions because they are culpable, because they rejected him. Even after he reached out to them with kindness, trying to lead them to repentance, they did not accept his kindness. They suppressed the truth and righteousness. This is what Paul is writing. Paul's not a Calvinist. Paul's an open theist. These people can change. These people can perform. These people do uh, cause God suffering, grief. They cause him anger. God uses his kindness to try to reach them. That trying does not always work. God, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Notice that these are the people who are seeking eternal life. Just as in Acts 13, 34, the people dispose themselves to eternal life. That's what he's talking about there. People can volitionally choose where they want to go, whether they want to suppress God and reject God or accept God and move towards God and try to work with God. But to those who are self-seeking, they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. These are strong emotions. God is a God of passions throughout the Bible. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Again, his audience, primarily Jews are Christians. There's a Greek contingent, but he needs to put them both on even playing field. That's what he does in the beginning part of Romans. He tears everything down so then he could build up a new foundation, a foundation they don't already accept. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So God doesn't show partiality. Well, in, in Calvinism, God does show partiality. He just elects some people for salvation and just kills others. That, that's partiality. God judges people as individuals. As we read throughout the Bible, Ezekiel 18, Jeremiah 18, God is not partial. And this is not a metaphysical absolute. This is a general rule of thumb. Remember, it's a mistake to just force metaphysics into texts where they do not belong. General operating procedures, God does not show partiality. Another unfortunate break in the ESV where they put a new paragraph after this. Uh, it's probably better flows without that extra break. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under law will be judged by the law. God has different standards for different people based on the circumstances. If you're under the law, you're going to be judged by the law. And if you're without the law, you're going to perish without the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Remember, people reject God. And so God is looking for a positive response. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Look how he uses the word nature there. People like to uh, try to grab that word in different contexts and say, oh, 
look, this nature is this inherent metaphysical state of being in which people are predestined to be like evil until they're spiritually enlightened. That's not what he's using it as. Nature is just like their character, how they act. And in his theology, there are people who are Gentiles who do the law by nature, even though they're not even under the law. He says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So Gentiles who are God-fearers are safe. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Remember before where Paul's talking about people have clearly seen the power of God, who God is, the laws of God. He's talking here about those same people. If those people internalize and decide to follow God, they are good. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men of Jesus Christ. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what's excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. He's tearing down the Jewish idea of superiority again. But if people aren't hypocrites, you know, they're, they're good. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, hypocrites are, are very conspicuous and people do it all the time to Christians. If there's pastors that fail have moral failings or just outright criminals, they, they tend to give Christianity a bad name. That's what he's describing here. There's a lot of Jews known for being duplicitous and they're giving Jewishness a bad name. That doesn't mean every Jew is doing that. He's just calling out the hypocrite. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He's making a moral argument. Remember, people are judged based on their culpability. So he's saying God doesn't also show favors. He doesn't have favoritism. And so you're not going to be having a special standard as a Jew compared to some Gentile who's doing the law. If you're breaking the law and the Gentile's doing the law, your Jewishness is not going to save you. So good luck with that. God is not partial. And guess what? You're going to be judged by that law and you're going to be condemned. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Guess what? They get more culpability because they have a written law against which they're being judged. They know even better than these Gentiles. But these Gentiles who keep the law, who by nature keep the law, that's their nature. <laughs> it's not like a sin nature that's passed down from Adam. By nature, they keep the law. Those are the people who will be judging the lawless Jews, the Jews who violate the law, a law that's been specifically given to them in writing. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul likes to use these terms, circumcision, uncircumcision, Gentile, Greek sometimes. Sometimes he contrasts Greek and Gentile or Greek and barbarian, you know, people who speak Greek and people who don't. And then the Jews are a third party. And sometimes when he talks about the circumcision, he's including Gentiles who do the law. And sometimes he's talking about all of Israel and not the Gentiles. And so you, you need to be careful about when he's using this, not to conflate them and not to try to make theological points 
at other parts in Paul's writings where he says, Paul says this about the circumcision, and then you turn here and say, oh, circumcision is a matter of the heart. So he's definitely talking about Gentiles over in this other passage. Paul speaks practically. And so sometimes there's conflation of terms. Sometimes he uses it to make a specific point at a specific verse and a specific part of his argument, but then goes on to use the normal definitions of the words later. And he talks about the circumcision versus the Gentiles later on. These are just normal categories that are used. So we need to make sure not to conflate because of specific points he makes in, in certain portions of his argument, try to try to take those and force them into parts of his argument where they don't belong. We're going to do one more section and then call it quits. Remember, Paul's argument, he starts off by putting the Jews and Gentiles on equal footing. And so now he has to explain how the Jews are special, because guess what? That's the story of the Bible, that the Jews are, in fact, special. So he has to give them some value back so they don't just reject out of hand his argument. What then advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Remember, just, just a couple of verses before, he said circumcision is an inward thing. And so now when he says circumcision, he's not talking about that inward circumcision. He was a couple of verses ago. He's, now he's talking about physical circumcision. Much in every way, he's talking about being a Jew. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true and everyone a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So what he seems to be saying is that God gave them special promises and special oracles, and uh, this is actually going to demonstrate God's righteousness. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So he seems to be separating how he's talking about this, what he just described. He's, he seems to be giving a colloquial explanation how maybe some of his critics would characterize his argument that their unrighteousness, Jewish unrighteousness, Jews were given the law, they violate the law, and God shows his wrath against them. He's saying, what, is this an unrighteous thing for God to do? He says, for by no means. Or then how could God judge the world? Again, God is going to judge the world. He's going to judge the Gentiles for their sins. Much the same way, he's going to judge the Jews for their sins. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Who's condemning him? The Jews are. The Jews are. Sometimes even Christian Jews, as we read in Acts. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying that their condemnation is just? And so Paul is being characterized by his critics as teaching to sin lawlessly, because the more you sin, the more grace is going to abound. And he's fighting that. This is not what he's actually teaching. He's teaching that God forgives sinners. Uh, God, God, it's, it's not that we should sin a whole bunch in order to make God even greater for forgiving more sins. That's not his argument. That's not what he's saying. Paul's saying that uh, it's it's not condemnable, his, his position, if it brings a lot of glory to God. So from here, he runs into the argument that we're all unrighteous. We're all the same. Again, this is, this is part of his strategy to make Jews and Gentiles equal, to pull down Jewish superiority and to level the playing field. And you look at his his arguments, the way he puts things together. Again, it's a mistake to assume metaphysics. It's a mistake when he says, none is righteous, no, not one, to say, oh, now we're metaphysically dead inside. This includes babies who die in the womb. This includes kids who haven't reached an age of maturity. 
It's a mistake to think that rather than practical. Remember, Paul saves people. Paul gives people spiritual gifts. These, these are practical statements. They're not metaphysics. And it's a mistake to take anything he says as metaphysics without something very pointedly in the context. I don't care what theology you're coming to the text with. Your theology doesn't matter. What does the text actually support? Don't tell me some sort of weird system that you invented behind the scenes to make this all work together. What does the text actually support? And it doesn't support the metaphysics. So in summary, what we covered today is Paul's idea about the future. The future is open. People can subvert what God wants for the future. God has a will that's very flexible that we can do one thing or the other. God is a very passionate God, a God who's trying to reach humanity and often fails. God is doing a lot of things to reach people and those people reject God. And the people are culpable because they had the ability to accept God, yet they didn't. And this is not an ability that you know that they didn't have from birth, that they're born, born dead. This is something that's active. And then God responds to their rejection. At some point in their life, they have the truth, but they decide to become evil. These people are culpable because these people are capable. And our culpability is proportional to our capability. Our culpability is proportional to our capability. This is Paul's mindset. The Jews are even more culpable than the Gentiles because guess what? The Jews had the law. They had the written law. They had written warnings for these things. And the Gentiles sometimes are better, who by nature do good things. Paul's definition of nature is not metaphysical. It's characteristics. It's people and how they act and how they behave. And no, those Gentiles who, you know, by nature do the right thing, He's not condemning these people in this next section here either. Paul is an open theist. He thinks in open theist terms. He thinks of God as a passionate God who watches the world and reacts to changing events. There's no indication that he's a Calvinist, that he believes in Calvinistic predestination rather than, rather than open theism, which is the story of the Bible, which is what the story of the Bible has led up to so far. The passionate God who cares about people and attempts to do things but people consistently suppress God's attempts to reach them. This is Paul's idea about God. Anyways, questions or comments, put that down below. Thank you for listening.